This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Last month, a ransomware attack temporarily shuttered a pipeline that provides jet fuel to major airports and gasoline to drivers on the East Coast. Attacks on critical infrastructure, like the pipeline, have been a concern for years, but the problem is getting significantly worse, says New York Times cybersecurity reporter Nicole Perlroth. Over the last year, we've seen ransomware hit hospitals, cities, schools, but also American mainstays like gas and meat and NBA basketball, and minor league baseball, and sophisticated companies like Quanta, the Apple supplier. What's being done to mitigate these attacks and who's causing them? Today, a panel of experts weighs in. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Digital. Ransomware is malicious software that's designed to block access to a computer system. Criminals typically demand money to unlock the system. Ransomware is a direct threat to national security, physical and digital infrastructure, and even individual well-being. So how are industry, government, and civil society confronting this challenge? Journalist Nicole Perlroth is joined by Chris Krebs, Sean Joyce, Kemba Walden, and Raj Samani for a conversation about countering ransomware. Krebs is the former director of the Federal Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Joyce, formerly of the FBI, is now at PricewaterhouseCoopers, where he's their global and U.S. cybersecurity privacy and forensics practice leader. Walden is assistant general counsel in Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit and helped launch the public-private ransomware task force. Raj Samani is chief scientist at McAfee. Their conversation was held June 8th. Here's Nicole Perlroth. The first question I'd like to throw out to you all is, why does ransomware suddenly feel so categorically different than what we have experienced in the past? Why do these ransomware attacks suddenly feel so visceral? And I think I'll start with you, Chris. I, you know, I think it's primarily because they they hit key parts of the critical infrastructure community. They hit the kind of capital centers between uh, oil and gas and and food supply, but but make no mistake that this has been an accretive trend over the last several years. Uh, the ransomware task force that Kimbo was a part of has been uh, focused on this issue since last summer, and, and so it's it's not just oh it all happened all of a sudden in the Biden administration. This has been something that's that's we've been building up to, and and I think there are three primary reasons. Uh, first is that, you know, even as we try to improve defenses across uh, the, the the critical infrastructure in our businesses and our state and local governments, we, we still just can't uh, get the basics covered because, frankly, the basics are still hard. Um, the second is that uh, the, the economic model uh, supporting ransomware has been validated time and time again, and in part, it's been enabled by cryptocurrencies. And the ability to transfer money outside the eye of the traditional fiat currency. And then third and finally is these actors, uh, these ransomware gangs have been given plenty of room to run. They have a safe harbor, uh, many of them in in Russia uh, under the watchful eye of the Kremlin. Now that's not to say that these are Russian government directed actions, but nonetheless, they've been given plenty of room to run and they just haven't felt meaningful consequences. So as long as there's vulnerabilities, uh, to exploit, there's money in it, and there are no real consequences, it will continue. Sean, I wanted to ask you about that safe harbor issue. 
Um, you know, some people have come out and said, we don't have a ransomware problem, we have a Russia problem. And what is your take on, on the safe harbor issue and what can we do to address this? So th- thanks, Nicole. And, and I think it kind of tags along with what Chris was saying, right? We have to have this multi-pronged approach when we look at this. And one of them is when you look at the top ransomware variants, whether it's Revo, Conti, Doppelpamer, there's one thing in common, Russia, right? And, and I think we have to establish, like when you look at a whole of government approach with the private sector. It's that diplomatic law enforcement and unfortunately at times that military actions that are necessary. And I think, you know, there has to be a clear message between, you know, President Biden and Putin that this behavior is unacceptable and there are red lines. And I think, you know, I, I would say even in my time in many a meeting, there was a lot of consternation about establishing a clear red line. I've heard a lot of people describe this as a national security issue. I would argue not only that, it's an economic issue, which you know Chris is touching on, that impact has really pivoted to being that, especially with Colonial, but also a public health and safety issue, right? And this is where I think there are clear red lines that that will not be something that will be tolerated and that there will be consequences, and that can range from you know many different things. So I think uh, you know the administration definitely has some things that was exhibited yesterday, uh, exercising one of those tools by you know the DOJ and FBI. But I also think the private sector plays a key partnership role in this. Yeah, and Kemba, if I remember correctly, the ransomware task force came out with a number of solutions on addressing safe harbor, um, things like maybe withdrawing visas, um, you know, to create some domestic pressure around safe harbor for cyber criminals. Could you lay out some of those recommendations? Yeah, so we have to remember, and the task force was cognizant of this, that the deployment of ransomware is at the end of the criminal activity, right? There are a lot of, there's a lot of criminal activity that takes place prior to even getting to the deployment of the ransomware. And so we took it from that lens. What can we do internationally to have an impact on the safe harbor of all of that criminal activity? So one of the recommendations, as you pointed out, was you know perhaps revoking visas. Another would be creating uh, more impactful uh, sanctions, right? So there, and then perhaps having a global organizational structure that really focuses resources. Um, really focuses on targets across the entire criminal spectrum so that uh, we attack this ransomware problem as the borderless problem that it is. Um, Perhaps providing more international or giving international organizations more lift to be able to really get at those specific targeted countries that are providing safe harbor. Um, Not only just safe harbor for the criminal activity, but safe harbor for, you know, loose cryptocurrency regulation or or know your customer regulation, but really using it as a global effort. So some of the, the least sexy recommendations, which I think are the most important, are around the organizational structure around international cooperation. Okay. And Sean, I see you raising your hand. 
Um, did you want to? Yeah, I just want to add, though, to what Kimberly was saying. Like, I think those are all great tactical recommendations, but we have to make sure we're not reactive with these recommendations. And that's what I mean by red lines. So I think the task force outlined some great things, but like that should be done now. If you do this, here are the consequences we will follow all the way from OFAC designation, visa, right, to arrest, all of those things. That is what I think we've been lacking in the past. And I think we've done sporadic, really, uh, actions to address it. Um, Raj, go ahead. I think we're missing perhaps, you know, the key issue here, which is, yes, we talk about dark side or Conti ransomware, but the reality is, is the reason we're seeing such a explosion of attacks and really why the impact is felt so much is because the bad guys have got better. And we've effectively completely lost sight of the true nature of the problem, which is there is now this affiliate or partner model. And they're effectively going out and hiring individuals to break into companies to exploit vulnerabilities that quite frankly are not sophisticated. In other words, they're getting into companies because the passwords are weak or systems aren't being patched. And if we focus all of our efforts on, as it was said earlier, like a Russia problem, well, what about this, this entire ecosystem of individuals that are breaking into companies and deploying ransomware? It's like, you know, we're, we're effectively blaming the people that are developing the tools as opposed to the people that are using the tools. Yeah, and what's, what Raj is referring to there, in case some of you don't know, is the fact that Revil and Darkside, the ransomware groups that held Colonial Pipeline and uh, JBS hostage, are ransomware as a service groups. They're leasing out their ransomware and the code and sort of the technical aspects of these attacks to anyone who's willing to take the risk of pulling them off. And so they've really lowered the, the barrier to entry in this market. The point I want to make is really those are ransomware uh, malware, right? Conti, our evil, um, double, right? Those are all the actual malware that's deployed at the end of a long line of criminal activity, like I've mentioned before. So just as Raj should explain, um, you know, these are criminal enterprises. There may be more than one criminal enterprise that uses a particular ransomware like Conti or Aribel, um, but at the end of the day, they have affiliates. The, an affiliate might be able to get entry into a network. Uh, there might be another affiliate that might have a few credentials to sell. Um, there'll be, be another affiliate that will use uh, malware to lateral into a network and another affiliate that will actually drop the ransomware. Uh, there's someone that develops the ransomware but you know, really at the end of the day, the work that has to be done has to look across the entire criminal uh, spectrum, right? Um, and that's a lot of what we're talking about in common. We're talking about it from different perspectives, but at the end of the day, it's the same cybersecurity uh, recommendations that we always produce, right? Multi-factor authentication, um, watch your VPNs and, and, and remote desktop protocols. Those are the those are the building blocks, the basics, so that they cannot um, bank vulnerable access to sell to a, to a manager of a ransomware enterprise. I'm just going to move on to one other thing, which is, you know, in terms of how we break this business model, and you've all done an excellent job of articulating just how sophisticated the business model has become, one of the controversial elements here that's increasingly drawing attention is cryptocurrency. You know, when I first started covering ransomware attacks 10 years ago, 
they would hold a PC hostage for 100 or 200 euros and say, hey, go buy a prepaid debit card at this drugstore and give us the pin. Now they say, give us $50 million in Bitcoin, preferably not Bitcoin, uh, preferably you know Monero or, or a cryptocurrency that's harder to trace. So clearly cryptocurrencies have enabled uh, ransomware. So how do we take that on? Why don't we start with you, Raj? Yeah, thank you. So I, actually, you know, we've had a lot of debates about people suggesting to ban cryptocurrency. But I want to kind of give you a perspective. In 2016, the most prevalent form of ransomware, in other words, the most popular ransomware was something called Gantcrab. And three years later, they retired, claiming to have made $2 billion. Now, do we honestly sit here and think, well, you know what, this particular multi-billion dollar organization, we've now effectively made it illegal to use cryptocurrency. So they're therefore going to stop doing this. And I think that's really quite far-fetched because if we if we you know if we ban bitcoin and if we ban you know any other cryptocurrency or any payment mechanisms they will adapt and they will innovate and you know we've seen this with dark side you know the the ransomware that's been in the press most recently they've now got a new version and they've actually had developers working on that day and night for the last couple of months so they will innovate and they will adapt and so i think just suggesting, well, you know, it's only one country or just suggesting actually it's only one technology is, is, isn't appropriate in my opinion. What about enforcing or better enforcing know thy customer and anti-money laundering laws on the cryptocurrency exchanges? Sean, I'll probably throw that one at you. Yeah, so Nicole, I think there's a lot of work going on with that right now as you see some of the major banks like JP Morgan, BNY Mellon, right, uh, allowing and developing the, their cryptocurrency capabilities. And I think KYC is a big part of it, right? As we look, I think legislatively and from a regulatory perspective, unfortunately, we're just behind the digital curve, right? And, and I think regulators and legislators struggle with understanding what these mean and how they fit into the business model. So, you know, absolutely, I think, you know, the group is making a great point, right? Ransomware is just another form of malware, and this problem is going to exist and morph and change over time. And I, and I think in that regulatory environment and legislative environment that we've really got to pick up the pace. Chris? Yeah, I, I, look, I think what you're hearing throughout this conversation is that there's no silver bullet that you know, improving defenses alone isn't gonna stop this uh, because someone in, will, will miss a legacy VPN hanging off the edge of the network. Somebody's, it's just gonna happen. So I am generally from a cryptocurrency perspective, this is, this is just one of the, the debates right now. And my sense of things is that the immediate course of action is to pick up where the last administration left off and dropping some of the know your customer requirements. It was a treasury department issue uh, in, in November, December. I understand this administration wants to follow that know your customer model, as well as some of the anti-money laundering and terrorist financing requirements. They've done it before, 20 years ago. If, you know, as the FBI says, this approaches 9-11, there are a number of tools implemented after 9-11 that I think we could map over here to cryptocurrency. Uh, but, but that alone is not going to solve. And also, you know, we, I think we need kind of a policy debate within 
you know, Western democracies of where cryptocurrency falls in terms of acceptable or, you know, with, within the, the banking industry, because it's already been adopted in China. Um, are we going to cede global competitiveness and innovation entirely to China on this one? And I am yet to see a technology like cryptocurrency that's broken the threshold, just wither and die. I, I don't think that's reasonable. So how do we manage the societal harms um, and continue to be competitive and open for innovation on, on cryptocurrencies? I just wanted to add that blockchain technology is, is innovative and, and I think is here to stay um, and for very good reason. One of the things that we learned on the ransomware task force, though, is that stakeholders that are part of the crypto economy uh, don't want their technology to be used for nefarious purposes either. And so I think there are opportunities to, to work with uh, stakeholders in the in the blockchain community and in the cryptocurrency economy to be able to find meaningful ways to expel the nefarious activity off of those platforms. Um, the other aspect here to breaking the business model that comes up again and again is the role of insurance companies in this space. For a long time, insurance companies have now started to calculate that it's still cheaper to for these companies to pay the ransom than to suffer the kind of destruction that we saw with the NotPetya attack a few years ago when companies like FedEx had $400 million worth of damage. And you think, well, you know, now these groups like are evil or revil, whatever we're calling them these days, are demanding $50 million in ransom. It's still cheaper than that $400 million in damage. So we saw AXA, the big French insurance giant the other week, say that they're not going to cover ransom payouts anymore. And, you know, ironically, a few days later, they were held hostage with ransomware. And we don't know if they've paid uh, yet. But, you know, what what should we be doing about the role of insurance companies in this space? Raj? Well, that's a, a challenging question. I've often said that um, cyber insurance is too immature for the market that we have today. Equally, we've also seen, I wouldn't call it evidence, but at least some degree of inference that organizations that have cyber insurance are targeted more so than those that don't have cyber insurance. And certainly some of the chat discussions and negotiations that we've seen between criminals and victims have been along the lines of, well, you have insurance and therefore they're just going to pay. Look, I think cyber insurance itself is fine, but the default policy to pay out is causing more harm to the wider market. You know, when we first started tracking ransomware, we were dealing with payments of three to $400. And now we have companies that are being demanded 50 million. So clearly there's something that's fueling the, the exponential rise in demands. And I would argue that a part of that is this default policy to pay. Mm-hmm. Chris, you raised your hand. Yeah, I, I also think as a result of some of the conditions that Raj laid out, the market is starting to, to correct. I mean, you saw AXA declare that they're not gonna pay out anymore you're starting to see more companies write either more narrowly constrained or more constricted policies. I just, I think that, you know, insurance <laughs> as uh, payouts start moving towards 100%, the, the market's not there anymore and insurance companies will, may move away. Uh, but, you know, there may be a positive out of all this where, you know, there are insurance companies that do the work that have the the data to back it up and require certain uh, security considerations and controls and they can validate and attest to those before issuing a policy. 
And Sean, you know, the FBI has long said, we really advise you not to pay, but this has never been a rule. Um, you know, why, why not make it a law that, that victims of ransomware attacks shouldn't pay? Because I think there are so many nuances involved. And so when you just look at colonial, you know, is it more important economically to the country that we had all had gas to be able to travel for the long weekend and the holiday and, and the impact there and then be able to do something reactively like they did on the seizure? So I, I would tell you, I think I've learned a lot in my private sector journey and realizing that it isn't always black and white. And there are a lot of nuances. So I certainly would be discouraging anyone to pay and looking for those avenues where you can avoid that. But I think there is, there's no clear cut, right? I think every situation is different. The impact is different. Take for instance, if you have a hospital, do you want that hospital to be down for how long type of thing? So I, I think it's a little bit more complex but I do think we should be doing everything and that companies should be working side by side with the government from the beginning. And that's where I think you are able to give yourselves the most, right, the options that you can take doing that. Yeah, and here we should probably put up a big red ad for nomoransom.org, <laughs> which uh, Raj helped co-found because as Raj can probably tell you, um, they've helped decrypt uh, a lot of this ransomware for people who have come to them and, and saved something like $600 million in ransom payouts going to cyber criminals. So Raj, if you want to speak to that briefly, it's, it's good for people to know. And, and, and I'd also like to ask you, you know, why don't people make that sort of initial effort to try and decrypt this ransomware before just paying like we saw with Colonial Pipeline? Yeah, so um, with ransomware, the misconception is, is that there's two options pay criminals or don't pay criminals. And actually, No More Ransom is a joint initiative with law enforcement and private sector companies where we give away free decryptors. Uh, we don't ask you for your email address. We don't track you at all. And we will tell you the version or the type of ransomware you've been hit by and whether there is a, a working decryptor that you can freely use to get your data back. And, and just, sorry, one minor point as well. Um, We've been talking as though paying a ransom gets your data back. We have to acknowledge that many of the decryptors that are developed by the ransomware groups are actually rubbish. So even if you pay, A, you may not get your data back or you may not get a decryptor like WannaCry. And even if you do get a decryptor, it might be absolutely useless. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Dr. Christian Hoppe's day job is combating infectious diseases. He's a molecular biologist based in Nigeria who's also on a mission to embolden young African scientists to take the narrative of Africa into their own hands. For far too long, he says, the West has failed to credit Africans for innovation and scientific breakthroughs. It's the result of a legacy of colonialism and anti-black racism, he says. I got tired of hearing people speaking and talking about and telling the story of Africa from, I mean, from, from American or from European lenses. It is high time with the knowledge and skills and, 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 and that we have to go back to Africa, empower young Africans, and then establish a, a platform where Africans can start doing high quality science. Hear more from Hoppy in the podcast Solvers. It's a new show about social innovation around the globe, created by the Skoll Foundation in partnership with Aspen Ideas. 
Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Just search Solvers. Kemba, can you speak to some of the task force recommendations on this issue? You know, another thing that's come up, I believe, in the report was that we need a 911 or 311 for ransomware attacks. Mm-hmm. Right. So the way that we approached it, we felt that there are some some precursors that need to take place before um, we decide to make a, a, a law that says that ransomware payments are prohibited. And one of those is we have to prepare governments to be able to absorb the economic impact of not paying ransomware, just as Sean had mentioned. So like a, a cost recovery fund would be something that would be appropriate. Perhaps finding opportunities for businesses to have alternatives to paying a ransom much like Raj had explained. But not every jurisdiction is at the point where it can support the ability to uh, outlaw or ban ransom payments. Just as Sean had explained, there are, not, there are a lot of nuances to this to this process. So the report really focuses on what are those building blocks that that we need to to focus on before we get to the point of prohibiting ransom. The other thing I want to point out, um, the report also focused quite a bit on information sharing and victim notification. Uh, and I, I view what happened in, with Colonial Pipeline in the last 24 hours and the, the FBI action and the DOJ action to be a great advertisement for involving um, law enforcement early, notifying law enforcement early, because um, you, you know it, it, it opens up a lot of um, op- op- opportunities, not only for the victim, but also uh, for the security community to be able to do something about it. I thought that was a really clever twist yesterday that, you know, here we were when Colonial Pipeline paid the ransom and nobody was really applauding them at the time for doing that. And now we learn that actually they did tip off the FBI and this allowed the FBI to trace the payment and to publicize the fact that they were able to get it back and offer really a carrot for other companies to report their ransomware attacks because there's a chance government government might help them recoup their payment. Chris? So I think the outcome of yesterday is is a great thing, uh, particularly for uh, the, the at least the bottom line of Colonial. But I would really hesitate trying to make this sort of uh, engagement mainstream, right? It's not the FBI's job to go out there and claw back money from criminals once they've taken it. And we'll, you know, I think it's a bad public policy outcome too, because remember, they only got 2.2 out of the 4.4 or whatever. So there's still a lot of rent out there somewhere that somebody's benefiting from. And as I understand it, what was captured or, or clawed back was the affiliate. And if you're just targeting affiliates, it's whack-a-mole. The dev crew that, that really owns the code for the rants, for the for the, the lockup, they they got theirs and, and they're skating somewhere. So I think, yeah, we need to take a deeper dive and look at what happened here. I also think that there are probably some facts left to come to light on exactly the mechanics of what happened here and whether those come out or not. We'll see. Um, but but yeah, good outcome, but this is not something that I think we want to see mainstream. Mm-hmm. Sean. Yeah, so, you know, like Chris, I look at yesterday as a great first step, but just one one small tool in the arsenal. And I would look at, I think what's more important is almost that mandatory reporting to the government. 
another question is what can companies do? You know, it, it, it's been infuriating almost to see that patient zero for the water treatment facility hack, which wasn't ransomware, was, um, you know, some old account that wasn't using two-factor authentication with a compromised password. And again, that's basically what the Colonial Pipeline hack came down to, as Bloomberg reported last week. It came down to an old employee account that was, for whatever reason, still active, a compromised password, and an account that didn't use two-factor authentication. So how do we get companies to just start doing the bare basics? And like Chris said earlier, the basics are hard, but we're not even trying in a lot of these cases. How do we incentivize companies to take this very seriously? Chris? I, uh, <laughs> the, I, I do really honestly feel like we're at an inflection point. I, I think that we've had a lot of conversation about public-private partnerships and encouraging through, you know, whatever sort of incentives. And, you know, from an incentives perspective, keep in mind that incentives can be both a carrot and a stick. And I think what you saw out of the administration with their executive order, the cybersecurity executive order a month or so ago, um, there will be trickle down effects there from improved uh, software development lifecycle, from build, uh, bill of materials, all, all sorts of benefits that will accrue to not just the federal government, but also the private sector by extension because they're gonna buy the same software. But I think to the bigger issue, we need to take a hard look at critical infrastructure, what those most critical of critical are is, is the cyberspace solarium is calling them the systemically important critical infrastructure. So if you're in a, in a place wherever you sit in the, in the economy, where if you get pulled out that there's a appreciable and meaningful impact uh, I think there are some standards that you're going to have to live up to. And uh, I think that's what's coming next. You're, you've already seen uh, TSA issue an initial directive on incident reporting uh, to pipeline, uh, the pipeline sector with probably standards uh, for security baseline standards, at least coming later this, this month or rather this summer, I'd expect. I think that's where it's going. I think that's Congress has finally come around on it. Uh, and, and industry, to a certain extent, is, is probably looking for a little bit of certainty on what it's going to uh, give them from a liability protection perspective as well. Mm -hmm. Kemba? Sure. Um, just to add on to what Chris explained, I think we you've heard this more and more, but go back to the basics, right? Two-factor authentication, segment your network, um, use um, reliable antivirus, just automate it. Um, but I think also in the private sector, boardrooms are, be are beginning to understand what resources they need to put into not just their information technology, but into their security practices. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the gaps might still exist is that CISOs and, and security departments and most in a lot of private sector companies are just under-resourced um, to tackle a big problem. And then, you know, tra phishing training, just the basics for cybersecurity hygiene, I think, isn't emphasized enough. Are there lessons from other countries we can borrow? I remember there was a study done with Symantec's data a couple years ago where it looked at the ratio of uh, successful attacks versus total uh, attack attempts on various servers. And it found that actually the countries that had the best ratio were in Scandinavia, 
And when they dug into why Scandinavia uh, was better off than the rest of us, a lot of it came down to a comprehensive national cybersecurity policy and a culture around security awareness. You know, they don't just have the click through anti-phishing training that we all have to do at our various organizations. They actually make it really crucial to the new hire on ramping. You know, are there lessons to be borrowed from that here? Would that work here? Um, you know, can we implement that kind of cybersecurity strategy when we've seen businesses and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce so reticent uh, to enact meaningful cybersecurity legislation and requirements for businesses? Raj, go ahead. So I, I would argue we don't need a stronger security culture to acknowledge having a password of one, two, three, four, five for your critical assets out on the internet is a bad thing. That's not a security culture requirement. That is common sense. And you know, I don't mean to sound dismissive, but we claim this to be a sophisticated attack. We claim that the adversaries are, you know, sophisticated attackers, but they're using weak passwords that they buy for the, less than the price of a cup of coffee. They get inside networks, and, I'll, and I will tell you that they aren't stealthy. I mean, they're incredibly noisy. The tools that they use should set off alerts across the environment. And so, yeah, like I said, I don't think this is a security culture requirement. I don't, and equally, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that you know, one nation is doing it better than the other. This is a global phenomenon. And, you know, the reality is, is the adversaries have no fear. They don't think they're going to get caught and invariably they don't. So, you know, in my opinion, what we need to do is collectively and globally enable private sector and public sector to better gather digital evidence to hold those individuals accountable because they will continue to do this because they fear they don't feel as though there's any risk in any way, shape, or form for carrying these out these attacks out. Mm -hmm. Sean, you've been on the front lines of some of these attacks and seen how they start. Um, you know, what do you think it's going to take to get companies to make two-factor authentication universal? A lot of people say it's a lot harder than it sounds. It is. And going back to Rosetta, I guess I would take a little different view. I, I think we do lack a security culture right, in, in this space. And it is, I, I use the analogy, would we leave all of our buildings, just the doors open? And would that be okay? Would we accept that? And it's the same way with like leaving someone's password in the open space is like leaving an extra set of keys. So I really think, right, that we need that regulation by sector. And, you know, much like the TSA directive that came out in, F in the financial services, the OCC and the Fed are looking at those regulations. I think those need to be actually established because I go back to what is the economic model to make the private sector actually do this? And that is the question, because forget about the, you know, the great companies like Microsoft, where it's part of their business and in the fabric of what they do. Most companies are not Microsoft. Um, well, the focus today is on ransomware. Is there a role for a mandate for certain cybersecurity practices along with penalties for economically important companies like we do in traditional audits like Sarbanes-Oxley, et cetera? You know, should we make some of these minimum cybersecurity requirements 
you know, a, a regulation by law, we mandate that you have to have strict password procedures and regular patch management and two-factor authentication and encrypt your important data. Is that realistic, Kemba? I was hoping you weren't going to throw that one to me. Um, <laughs> so, so I think um, a couple of things about that. First, we have to recognize that, like Sean said, not all not all private sector is the same. Um, they span across different critical infrastructures. They span between sophistication and um, whether they're large companies or small companies. Uh, so the answer is it's possible, but we're not really in a space yet to be able to do that. Um, and, I'll, and I'll explain, you know, we have to have, as part of the ransomware task force, we realized that there's a lot of information out there. It's just not in a, in a digestible form for everyone. Uh, so first we need to do that. Um, and then perhaps by sector, though that gets sticky for its own reasons, but perhaps by sector, have the regulator um, require those minimum baselines once we've brought it to a, a point where it's digestible. Um, ideally, it would be nice to have a national level regulatory um, requirement process, but we're, we're far, far from that. Uh, and, and it's unclear who would, who would do that. So I don't know if that's a simple answer to the question, but that's that's the best I've got for right now. What are the tactical steps for local governments and schools to counter this? It is not a fair fight. Can state and local law enforcement build sufficient capacity to be the lead agencies for ransomware attacks on individuals or small organizations? Chris? I, um, so you asked two questions there, I think. One is, how can they be better prepared? And then how can they be a supporting resource for uh, businesses in their community? And, and I think that's the right sequencing because there's a heal thyself uh, element of this first. And I think this is where actually the US Congress has a, has a great opportunity, whether it's in the Infrastructure Investment Act that's under debate uh, or some other funding mechanism where we, we have to have an influx of cash to state and local partners uh, so that they can make the modernization jump uh, it, right now. And they're gonna have a harder time with that given some of the, the COVID or the tax revenues that have dropped off due to, due to COVID. So we need to get state and local security uplift uh, pronto. That'll then put them in a position to provide additional uh, resources and, and support at uh, within their communities. But I think CISA has a huge responsibility and role here uh, in continuing to build out boots on the ground type of support and assistance, not building anything, not deploying anything, but uh, engaging, supporting, advising, uh, training, uh, all those sorts of just bare bones, building blocks, security assistance uh, that the federal government should rightly provide. Mm -hmm. Given where we are now, where everyone is, seems to be getting hit, um, are there more creative options available? Like, would there be something where a Microsoft would sort of supplement the salaries of some of its best security engineers and send them to do a tour of duty where they would go around some of these critical uh, state and local organizations and help them find vulnerabilities and patch them and shore up their defenses? Chris? I, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, is regional consortia uh, in purchasing from the big technology companies, whether it's it's Microsoft, it's AWS, Google, doesn't matter. But it, the, 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 to the extent that we can get more 
organizations grouping together in how they buy and having a more standardized deployment. Same thing should happen in the federal government. There shouldn't be 101 different instances of Office 365 or whatever the mail is. There should be a single standard that's easier to defend, monitor, log, and respond to. The same thing should happen across state and local governments. Um, and so I think that's one area where I would start. Sean, um, what do you think about sort of overcoming the talent shortage uh, that we already have to help some of these state and local municipalities and schools uh, shore up their cybersecurity defenses? You know, I, I look at a lot of what we're doing as kind of a short-term, medium-term, and long-term. And I do think like cybersecurity education needs to begin in elementary school for all of us, for that just general awareness and continue because that's kind of working in that fabric and that culture that I think we all need to know living in a, a digital world. But as far as is the shortage, I think we need to, to look at the private sector and the government to really help, right, these areas like Chris was referring to. I think, Kemper, you mentioned it, right? I think we have to figure out, and then I think we have to incentivize some of these things like we do a girls encoding. I think with Microsoft, I know you do some things. We have to continue to be sponsored these activities to, we're gonna have this shortage for some time. I think globally it's 3 million um, and it's not getting any lower. So I, I think we've got to use a variety of different things to really uh, increase the number of folks eligible. Thank you so much everyone for joining us. Sean Joyce worked as the Chief Trust Officer at Airbnb. Chris Krebs is a Senior Newmark Fellow in Cybersecurity Policy at Aspen Digital. Raj Samani is co-founder of No More Ransom, which helps victims of ransomware. Kemba Walden launched and led the ransomware program for Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit, and Nicole Perlroth is a cybersecurity and digital espionage reporter for the New York Times. Their conversation was held June 8th by Aspen Digital, a program of the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's discussion is from Aspen Digital, and this show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.